Coming up on this week's show, the Mega Drive Mini reviews are in, but is it worth a buy? How much are your retro games really worth? And the most important company you've probably never heard of, the story of General Magic. This week's show is brought to you by Retro Gamer Magazine, the essential guide to classic games. And the Brighton Beard Company. Your beard will thank you for it. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 192. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And uh, we're still getting over an incredible weekend last week at the Retro Computer Museum in Leicester. We were there celebrating their 10th anniversary last weekend. Yeah, it was an awesome event. And actually, I think it was probably one of the last sunny days, but we ended up spending it inside playing <laughs> games. You know. We did, yeah. My missus, when I got back, she's like, you know, been out in the garden all day reading books, like proper suntan on her. I came in looking like Joe, actually, really pale Really and pasty. pale and pasty. <laughs> so it was an amazing day, though. And, it, you know, 10 years they've been there now with Leicester doing that, which is incredible that they can keep that going as their full-time thing. And, yeah, and the yeah. place has grown so much. Yeah. But, you know, this isn't the only event because we're kind of getting to the video game show video game season aren't we really well it used to be when you know summer was over we'd just chill for like six months but yeah it seems like the calendar fills up a little bit more these days so next weekend we're going to be what's home turf for us nottingham yeah we're going to be at the retro games fair at the britannia hotel on saturday the 5th of october yeah, um, which starts at eleven. All three of us should be down. Um, so I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> You've got a but busy day, though, don't you? I've got a really busy day. I'm I'm only going to be there for a couple of hours, unfortunately, because I've triple booked myself, <laughs> along with uh, being tattooed and a wedding. Um, so yeah, it's going to be a fun one for me. So if you see me kind of barging through people like Mrs. Doubtfire at the end <laughs> to get to some games. <laughs> you know why. So if you want to come along and maybe get your chest signed of Handsome Joe, uh, yep. <laughs> make sure you get there nice and early. You'll be sloping off around lunchtime. Uh, but yeah, it's going to be a really good event, actually. First one that we've done, actually, in Nottingham, isn't it's, it? It's really for a while, easy to get to as well yeah. from like Derby and Leicester. You know, yeah. Just a quick kind of half an hour trip. Yeah, right in the middle of Nottingham. So that's next weekend, Saturday, 5th of October from 11am at the Britannia Hotel. I'll put all the details in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, we have got a really interesting topic to talk about on this week's show. I think this is kind of going to be... Do you remember, you were actually away when we did this, but Joe and I did an episode about a system called Plato that was kind of one of these systems that, you know, back in the early days, the 60s and 70s, mm. formed all the technologies that essentially we use and take for granted daily. Now, this company that we're going to be talking about today is up there with Plato, if not even more influential. Oh, yeah, this is General Magic. And if people don't know about General Magic, they kind of came from the Apple Computer Group, but they were funded by lots of other companies. So, yep. you know, HP were involved. They had Panasonic, all of these people. They created, like, small touchscreens, the precursor to USB, uh, multimedia email, network games, internet TV. <laughs> they had uh, emojis even developed. So, well. really, they're kind of like the granddaddies of modern kind of smartphones and the yeah. kind of technology that we all carry around with us today. Well, they had the first handheld personal communicator in 1994. And if you look at it, it's essentially a prototype iPod or a... Um, iPhone, it, you know, it's really? very early days. We're talking early nineties. Mm. That stuff. I mean, the company's called General Magic. It did seem like magic. Yeah, it yeah. was incredible. Unfortunately, I mean, they had a bit of a tragic history. Even though they came up with all this stuff, a lot of people that worked there went on to found massive companies. Mm. And one of the guys that worked actually did develop the iPod after that, and a lot of them stayed at Apple. But it's really interesting how 
this is kind of the foundation of all this technology yeah. that's in our pocket today. And there's going to be a movie, actually, that we've watched. Did you watch the film? Yeah, yeah Really fantastic. interesting movie. Yeah. Um, all about general magic. And today on the show, we're going to be joined by Matt Maud. Now, he's one of the producers uh, behind this movie, All About General Magic, and he's going to tell us a story of this incredible company. Again, probably the most important technology company of all time that you've never heard of. Today, the story of General Magic with Matt Maud coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. Now, obviously, anyone that's into retro gaming, you've got your things you've got to check out. Obviously, the Retro Hour podcast every Friday to get the inside story and what's happening in the world of video games and interviews. But one thing that we do love is a good magazine. I mean, magazines are where it all came from. It's how we all grew up learning about video games. And we're really lucky that today we have a magazine devoted to this incredible hobby of classic games. Now, we are, of course, talking about Retro Gamer magazine, who we've got to give a huge thank you to Retro Gamer. have come on board as our latest supporter, and I'm sure everybody listening to our podcast has at least picked up a copy of Retro Gamer at some point in the past. You know, I've followed Future Publishing since I've been a kid. Yeah. Kind of the majority of my favourite gaming magazines have come from these guys, and Paul Jury as well, big supporter of the show, Retro Gamer writer. Absolutely. Now, you've both got a copy of uh, Retro Gamer magazine in front of you there. I mean, this month... There's so many interesting stories in there. I mean, not only do they give you exclusive access to classic developers, give you behind-the-scenes stories, read what the biggest names in the industry have to say about the games they've created, the legacy they've left as well, and also revisit your favourite games of all time and uncover fascinating new facts. Now, this month, the cover story is actually all about the Mega Drive Mini. Yeah, I I found this really fantastic because they're kind of doing a full, in-depth look at the Mega Drive Mini. But uh, they've kind of done a little play on the old Mega Drive logo. To, to be this good takes ages. And it says, to be this good has taken ages. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it kind of goes through all the old Mega Drives and all the old versions until we get to the latest version, which seems to be the best. And also they've got the history of Roller Coaster Tycoon, incredible game, and the making of a game we were chatting about actually before we started recording, a game called 13. Yeah, me and my friends used to play that because there was so much hype about that when that came out. And not that it was a flop, yeah. but it was one of those games where it was like, this game's going to sell so many million copies and you know, really just kind of like had this huge marketing campaign for it and stuff. But yeah, we've got the inside story of it in this month's issue, and which you, is really interesting. And you're looking through some Neo Geo stuff as well. Like it was a bit yeah, higher, but it yeah. Wasn't it? I was looking through the Neo Geo uh, arcade fighter games that we've got here and it's got like price lists and price comparisons, you know, for the AES and the MVS. And uh, I was just like, oh wow, this is, this is just ridiculous on here. Um, and also just kind of touching on the Mega Drive Mini as well, I'm really, really pleased to say this magazine has actually got a list of all the PAL region games, the US region and the Japanese region, and what the kind of like the different Mega Drive minis have on them. And I've been looking for that list. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's where you find stuff like so that. That's where you're going to find it. In Retro Gamer magazine. Now, they are the essential guide to classic games. And if you don't read it already, you need to check it out. Honestly, everyone that listens to our podcast needs to read Retro Gamer. And we've got an incredible offer for you. Now, you can save, get this, 93% with this exclusive offer for Retro Hour listeners only. We want to sort you out with three issues of Retro Gamer for just £1. That's crazy. You can't even buy a steak bait, can you, for one? No, I said that as soon as Dan told me that. I was like, you can't even get to Greg's and buy anything for a pound. Like, and you get three of them. That's crazy. So three issues of Retro Gamer. It comes out every month for just one quid. Normally it'll cost you £15. All you have to do is tap this into your browser right now. Claim this while it's on. Myfavoritemagazines.co.uk forward slash retro hour. So that is myfavoritemagazines.co.uk forward slash retro hour with Retro Gamer, the essential 
special guide to classic games. Now, before we get into the story of General Magic and update you on this week's retro gaming news stories, let's give a big mention to the people who've made it into the VIP club this week in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. How amazing would it be to be in the Hall of Fame, Joe? You can't get in the Hall of Fame. I can't get in the Hall of Fame because I don't know how to donate to the Hall of Fame. <laughs> I'll tell you how to donate, guys. What you do is you go to the retrohour.com and you click on supporters and there's a PayPal option to donate so you can do it in any currency yep. and all this money goes back into helping the Retro Hour show keep going. Simple as that, really. A little tip jar on our website, so I expect one from you this week, Joe. Well, that's how retro I am. <laughs> <laughs> PayPal? What's PayPal, that? what's this? <laughs> For making a Postal donation. order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's on the back of a postcard. Now, for making a donation, you'll earn a shout in a future episode of the show for helping us out. Just like this week... Andrew Allers, Ryan Brooks, Stephen Fegley, and Gary Smith, who all made donations into the running of the show. Really appreciate that, guys. And you can do the same at theretrohour.com. Now, we did mention that it's the front cover of this month's edition of Retro Gamer magazine. I probably watched about 50 videos of it on YouTube over the weekend. <laughs> Even got my hands on one to play on Saturday. It is finally here the Mega Drive Mini. Launching in the UK in a couple of weeks' time. October 4th? Yeah, October 4th, so next Friday. A lot of people have got them, though, already, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, <laughs> so Sega have been really... Um, I think they're really proud of this. Yeah. Uh, because it hands-on developed by Sega. They're sending it out to a lot of people, so a lot of YouTubers have you know, already had, had their hands on them. And I actually managed to get to play one in Japan as well earlier this year. Yeah. And if you so. didn't know about the kind of background of this before they had the At Games consoles, which were kind of a, a third-party company that Sega were using to create the consoles, but the standard wasn't there. The quality wasn't there. Quality wasn't there. The sound wasn't there. So Sega were going to make this without games, but yeah. then they decided to drop them and go for it themselves. Yeah, the community just went like, no, don't use them, and then say, oh, we'll do it ourselves. Really interesting. Sega have actually really listened to their fan base yeah. this year. Um, I'm really pleased for them. And what I think is cool as well, it's the first Sega console they've, you know, hardware they've made since the Dreamcast, yeah, which is yeah. pretty cool. Really well, cool. Uh, they've got the full tower stack system. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I really want to get my hands on that. You can get the uh, the Sega CD and the uh, 32X, yeah. can't you? Just yeah. just for fun. And it comes with Sonic and Knuckles as well, so you can stack <laughs> even higher. It is called the Tower of Power. Yeah, absolutely amazing. <laughs> so... The reviews I've seen then, mostly positive. Yeah. Not completely without fault, though. No, so they're saying that there's still, which is the hardest thing to do on the Mega Drive, a few sound problems. And if the sound problems don't seem to be consistent. Like, uh, they're saying a few jumps on uh, Sonic or, yeah. like, Castle Illusions or a few frames behind. Oh, um, really? It's sync issues, then. Yeah, yeah, oh. but but that's not constant. Right. So maybe a firmware update or something might be able to sort yeah, this out. Yeah, I've quite a few YouTubers, well, one or two YouTubers have mentioned that there's like a half a second or a couple of frames of lag yeah. in some of it. Uh, but then they're kind of arguing with other YouTubers on the channel, um, you know, when there's more than one of them talking about it, and like saying, well, I didn't have any issues with it, whereas I've played it, you know, for 30 hours plus kind of thing. Um, so I'm really, really, really looking forward to getting my hands on it because I've only literally played it for like two minutes in June. Um, so I really kind of want to get my hands on it and see if that is actually what, there. What were the controllers like? Because they're saying that um, in Wired here, they're saying that they're literally perfect recreations of yeah, the original. They, well, they've used all the original molds and everything, haven't they? So mm. they were pretty... Well, they were perfect. I, it was a Sega Mega Drive controller as far as I was concerned. Yeah, and it's got a long lead on it as well with the USB yeah. on the end. Yeah. You think it's a good distance from your, your modern telly. Yeah. Do you yeah. think it's going to be it's worth the £70? Or do you think they're going to end up doing a, a drastic um, PlayStation Classic drop? Or? I think from what we've heard so far, I don't think it's going to drop like the PlayStation Classic did. Um, I don't know whether it'll be as in demand as, say, the NES Classic was. 
um, or as people tried to make the SNES Classic as in demand. <laughs> um, but I don't think it will dr- drop drastically. It'll probably drop to like £50 maybe mm. at Christmas or something. That'd be my prediction. But f- at this stage, when people were talking about the PlayStation Classic, like it was already like garbage. So Yeah, and, and this has got a good reaction from the retro yeah. game community. I mean, there's the slight audio sync issues. Again, I mean, really only connoisseurs of Sega yeah, games are going to... Yeah. I mean, okay, you know, you want it to be as, as perfect as possible. And the at-game systems, I mean, I played a few of them, and the audio, I mean, even my wife knows nothing about, you know, retro games. Would that be are, like, that's off. Yeah, the sound yeah. sounds weird. Yeah, what's yeah. on with it? And even she noticed that. But also, I guess that's just on the jumping. So, yeah. you know, what always really jars me with Sega games is like when you hear the game music played at a mm. different speed or even even if you've come from PAL to NTSC it still kind of makes you feel a bit weird doesn't it yeah and apparently some of the um, CRT filters are not quite on point they reckon that emulators do a better job um, but again I mean if you're really that bothered about that you'd probably be playing an original Mega Drive on a CRT and, yeah. and, and I guess it's updatable as well like um, maybe they can send something down the line that's going to well it's uh, not it's not it's um, not... online connected there's no uh, Wi-Fi okay. chip or anything oh, is it not? they okay. reckon they could potentially do an update via USB Ah, um, okay. So you could download it, put it on a USB mm. stick and put it in. I mean, that that's maybe that's expecting a bit too much of the kind of audience that would buy this. I don't know. Yeah. But, I mean, from if you, if you essentially want a really good, as close to the original as you're going to get from a product that you can buy on the shop shelves in a few weeks' time here in England or next week, um, then I think this is like the system that you're going to buy. If you, I mean, it's got a good selection of games. The controllers are good. The hardware looks really good. It's well built. And I think, you know, in terms of a, a recreated Mega Drive, it is the best of the bunch from what I've seen so far. Yeah, good so. to see some Sega hardware out there, finally. I really want it to be a success. I yeah. really want a Dreamcast Mini and a Saturn Mini. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is actually a thread on Reddit I've been reading. Um, people saying, you know, if you could decide the next classical mini console, what would it be? I was thinking about this for me, and I think this is probably one of the most likely to happen. They've got to do an N64 Mini. I think that's yeah, the one I'd like. I, yeah. think, I think that's the most likely one to yeah. happen now, I reckon. Yeah. The Saturn, some people are saying, but I, I don't think that's mainstream enough. I don't know. I would I look think for the me the one. I, yeah. I think the one I would want the most would be the Saturn. Yeah, but I don't. I don't know because Saturn emulation and stuff. It's just for having issues with the Mega Drive yeah. and the PlayStation. I think I can't imagine what the uh, the the Saturn would be like. Like, have, have you tried using a Dreamcast nowadays? It, if you put the CDs in, it's like yeah, yeah. Like that. So it would be nice to have a, yeah, a modern nice equivalent. Yeah, you just want a Vectrex Mini Ravi. Oh like. god. Yeah. <laughs> now let's talk about a topic that Joe's eyes are going to glaze over here. Well, let's. <laughs> let's let's try and explain it to yeah, Joe then. Yeah. So this is it's been announced this week and something that we we've, we've known's been coming for a while. The Vampire Standalone version 4 has officially been launched. Now, for the uninitiated who are not, you know, massive into the Amiga scene, what is the Vampire? So the Vampire is basically a recreation of Amiga with modern components, but the old Amiga system, but what they've done is they've added a few things on. So they've they've created a new CPU. Uh, called the 080 and it's missing a few instruction sets but it does a lot of stuff to speed it up now this board is kind of been produced brand new yeah so that they're, they're, they've made it themselves they've designed it and they've finally managed to release it as a kind of a product now the thing with amiga is a lot of stuff like the operating system is copyrighted they've put in a ROM for an operating system called AROS, which okay. is a kind of open source free implementation of the operating system to avoid any legal woes. And these kind of legal troubles have meant that 
no products really could be released that have been that compatible. So we'd say it's an Amiga-compatible computer at the moment. Now, they did have these... Um, they made them before that you plugged onto, onto an original Amiga, and it kind of really sped it up and gave it more colours and graphics and stuff. Okay. And they sold for about $150. But this is like a standalone computer, so you don't need anything else. You know, it's new yeah. hardware all the way. The only thing is, it does make it more pricey. Now, I did mention that the, the vampire that I've got for the Amiga 600... 150 euros, I think I paid for that. Yeah. They're talking about this launch price here is going to be 549 euros. So it is pricey, but then it's custom hardware. And I guess, you know, they've got to get some kind of return on yeah. the development and they're not yeah. going to make, you know, hundreds of you thousands. Know, of you know, I thought for that price, they would have done like, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the um, box here and mm. it just looks like a little PC box with a graphic stuck on it. Yes. Yeah some other cheap components i think for that price they should have done a nice amiga looking kind of thing to me it looks quite like jaguar with the black and the uh, Jaguar. yeah yeah <laughs> sacrilege which is a selling point for me I'll give you that. <laughs> yeah 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 but um maybe in the future you know if they can sell more of these i yeah. reckon they'll be able to make them cheaper and also what they want to do is they want to get this board and they want to turn this into an add-on card for your amiga maybe that one will be cheaper and I mean, there are third-party cases out there. You know, like Steve Jones, who we've had on before, he's got a case that yeah. this will fit in, uh, if you want a nicer-looking case. It is cool. I mean, what people are doing with it, though, they're kind of doing stuff that wasn't possible with the original Amigas, like, you know, porting over some later PC yeah. games and making demos that are exclusive to this board. So it's an interesting direction. I think at that price, you're really only aiming for the proper, super yeah, hardcore yeah. fanboys. Yeah, it's, it's very niche. Um, it is. But like you said, you know, price might come down over time if the components get cheaper and they sell them. So I think it's cool that it's finally here because, you know, it is a project it's, that they It's amazing because what we're seeing at the moment is we're seeing a, a, a flurry of Amiga hardware. And when we go to Amiga Germany, I think there's going to be about four or five different products that are actually coming out. And was, uh, that's gonna, insane. I was <laughs> going to say, I mean, for... You know, for Amiga, I, I know nothing about Amiga, even though these two talk to me about it every day. But there's always something going on yeah. in the community. There's always something coming out. So yeah. it is pretty amazing all these years and, later. And another cool thing about this is actually you can run an Atari core on it. Okay. So you can also run Atari stuff on there as oh, well, wow. which yeah. is pretty cool. So that opens it up a bit. Yeah, so bring lots of money to Amiga Germany when we go in a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to read all about that, we've got the specs and uh, the first photos of the Vampire 4 as well. We'll put those in our show notes at theretrohour.com. That's fair to say, looking around the table, we're all partial to a bit of rap music now and then. Oh, God, love it. Yeah. Yeah. What about this? Now, this is <laughs> an Atari Centipede commercial okay. from the early 80s that features one of the Worst raps you've ever heard in your life. The centipedes are coming. Get your fingers moving fast and the spider's out to get you. Do you think that you can last? You can shoot him in the middle. He will only break in two. And the fleets are even faster if you look away and through. See the scorpion a-dancing? He can really help you score. But the centipede's immortal. Keeps coming back for more. Centipede is from Atari and it's faster than a jet. If you're looking for some action, it's the game you gotta get. Centipede! He missed the oh. trick there at the end, got back on. It's not whack. That would have been not whack. <laughs> if anyone wants a rap yeah. doing for their new product launch, you know, it, it reminds <laughs> me of all these really bad kind of rap things, and everyone forgets about them. Do you remember Mr. T's Treat Your Mother Right? Yeah, mother. <laughs> like no other. <laughs> I want to play that one. We'll get copyrights. And, right. and, and that, um, that don't copy your floppy rap as well. Yeah. Don't copy your floppy. It was kind of the, uh, you know, there's like a movement now, isn't it? It's called like, you know, there's actually a subreddit called Fellow Kids. Yeah. 
And it's about companies who are trying to be hip and down with yeah, the kids and yeah, all that. And some yeah. of them are absolutely cringeworthy and hilarious. I mean, that was the thing in the 80s and 90s. The if, thing is, that's 1983. That, yeah. that probably would have worked on like six, seven-year-olds and stuff. It I was think. like rapping grannies and stuff. Yeah. I remember that was a <laughs> yeah. trend. When you talk talking 80s, that's not long after like Sugar Hill Gang and Grandmaster Flash. That's, pr- that's a pretty early example of rap music. Yeah, yeah there yeah. you go. Pretty yeah. early. Yeah, that, that deserves respect, I think. <laughs> <laughs> now, we've all got a good collection of retro games. Now, imagine when we go to the uh, retro gaming fair in Nottingham next week, we'll probably have even more. Do you ever wonder, though, when you're looking around your games room, like, how much is this stuff really worth? Yeah, well, I know exactly how much it's worth. It's because of the wife constantly reminds me <laughs> <laughs> of what I could do if we sold these. <laughs> Does she check the prices online? When we moved last time, uh, which was three years ago, she started going through my Super Nintendo collection and just comparing them to eBay. And her words were, I feel sick. No way. <laughs> so I was like, whoops. <laughs> well, you might want to keep her away from this article then. Uh, yeah. It's on Nintendo Life. Now, what they've done is they've actually gone through a few of like, you know, the mainstream big yeah. Nintendo games. Yeah. And they've kind of looked at eBay history and found out the highest paid price for games that, you know, actually probably were in most people's collections. For example, Super Mario World, now it came out in 1991, one of the the launch titles on Super Nintendo, I believe. Yeah. Um, £39.99 it came out at. Highest paid price on eBay was 2000 664 quid. Uh, you know, the crazy thing about eBay is, because I've sold some games that yeah. have sold for 800 but they've also sold for 60 And yeah. it really depends on the people bidding. If people get in a war and they really want yeah. that game, there's nothing <laughs> stopping them getting to crazy prices. If so you've got money. Yeah. So the important thing to remember about this article was, at a glance, I was like, oh, what? £2,664. Pounds. It's... It's the sealed versions yeah. of yeah. these games, yeah. isn't it? They're talking about mint perfect, mint, mint perfect yeah. sealed games. What Ravi's talking about is the CD32 games, which are absolute, you know, crippling junk, but <laughs> yeah. still worth that much. I have a few sealed, but they look like they've been sat on by somebody. So. <laughs> but it's a really, really interesting thread because of you know, for a start, you've got all the stats of how many units that particular yeah. game sold as well. Mm. I think it's quite yeah. interesting. And then it's interesting to see games packing games such as like Super Mario 64 to hear that the you know this one sold for 591 pounds. Yeah, which, and they're yeah. talking that like it's a, that's a 1,379 percent price increase yeah. on the original. But I think what right at the bottom what really really made me chuckle was Sonic the Hedgehog. The highest <laughs> paid price for it is 40 pounds for a sealed copy. Of the same price even Pokemon's <laughs> more, uh, more more. It's got a 1.18 percent markup. <laughs> Bless Sonic. We love you, Sonic. We the love Hedgehog. Sonic. What is interesting is uh, Crash Bandicoot actually sell more copies than the original Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah, yeah I thought so. that was quite interesting. Uh, I think there's a typo with Metal Gear Solid where it's 49 million units sold. I think that's meant to be 4.9 million. I was going to say, that is a lot of the ones. That, 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 that make it like the, the biggest selling game in history. Yeah. <laughs> 49 million. Uh, well, actually, Minecraft is, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It probably has got 49 million. Um, um, yeah, I mean, people have probably got you. I mean, we've all got these games in our collection, but not sealed. That's a difference, yeah. isn't it? You know, yeah. my loose cart's in the bottom of my, like, Cupboard in my in my garage is not going to fetch like yeah ten thousand pounds or anything like that. But maybe you have got some. I mean, I think looking at these, I mean, like you said, these are eBay prices. Yeah, and getting these you know sealed copies is what real collectors want. But you can often find them cheaper if you kind of get lucky or you go to games yeah, fairs sometimes yeah. and stuff. It's... I've always found the best deal at shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm. Whenever I bring money to shows, it's like. I look at something, I think, I've really got to get that now, otherwise I'm going to pay four times the price yeah. on, online. So, uh, yeah, if you want to find out more about that and have a look at it, I'll put that in our show notes at theretrohour.com.
Now, we love playing arcades as well, you know. The arcades seem to be cropping up everywhere. Um, when we're at the Retro Computer Museum in Leicester over the weekend, there's a guy we know called Duncan who comes along to a lot of these events. He practically lives at Arcade Club in Leeds. He was yeah, talking about there's, amazing there's tons of them happening, and they're all coming up. In, there's quite a lot in England, so I was yeah. thinking, why don't we make an arcade map, guys, or something? Or if there is one... Can our listeners point us to it? Because yeah. I'd love to know where all the arcades are. Like, where's my closest arcade? That'd <laughs> be good, actually. An yeah. Arcade finder service. Yeah, yeah, like Google Maps arcade layer. <laughs> well, if you live in Norfolk, uh, there's one in Norwich that's oh, just nice. opened. Um, and people have been talking about this on um, you know, Facebook and Twitter, and I've seen Nostalgia Nerd did a visit there the other week on his YouTube channel as well. Now, this is in a shopping mall, then. Yeah, so from what I understand, it's in Norwich's... Castle Mall. So I'm assuming that's a shopping mall because I'm not very familiar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Norwich. and it says it's kind of a mixture of vintage arcade games and they've uh, been sourced from all around the world. And it's not that bad, actually. £10 for adults, £7.50 for kids. I was watching the video earlier on and it's a guy named Glenn McDonald who yeah. started this. So it opens on September the 28th. So that will be this Saturday. So yep. if you're listening on Friday, it will be opening tomorrow. Um, and essentially... It's, I think, several floors. He says the first floor is kind of like, you know, they're going to be doing some cocktails, some tables to kind of sit around with with retro consoles and stuff, but then you kind of go upstairs, and he's got this massive open space of just arcade machines, ranging from the 70s all the way up to the 2000s. Um, you know, there's a rhythm section with like Guitar Hero and Dance Dance Revolution, but then you've got all your your classic coin up, and then you've got all your shoot the screen ones. Um, so it looks really cool. And you know, the ten pound entry is you get a wristband, and then that's it. You get in it for the day. And he says, if you leave, if you come in the morning, and then you go do your shopping or whatever, you go do whatever, go out for food. You're more than welcome to come back, come back with the same day. And um, that's the model a lot of them are doing now. And it's it's yeah. better than trying to scramble around for change yeah, or put it in that machine, absolutely. isn't it? Well, yeah. well, that's that's. That's what they're saying here. They're saying, you know, the arcades aren't what they were. A lot of arcades are now ticket redemption, gambling machines, and they want to bring back that old arcade feel. Yeah. And I think it's a labour of love as well, because watching the video, he was saying it started out as his own personal collection. You know, he was into buying and, you know, renovating these these games. Um, And it kind of just kind of went from there and was like, oh, maybe I can bring this back, make a business out of it. So it'd be interesting to go down there. I love the fact that it's in a mall as well, because, you yeah. know, we, we all speak as, you know, guys that have put hold on this. You know, go shopping with your missus and then... <laughs> you, you, a lot of shops these days haven't even got a man bench to no, sit on. No. How cool is that? You know, your wife's shopping there, you're like, I'll snip to the arcade for an hour or two, love. <laughs> to be mad, every shopping mall should have an arcade I, in I, it. I'd hope my missus would come <laughs> with me, to be fair. <laughs> so, yeah, good luck with the opening weekend if you're in Norwich and you're heading down. I mean, we, we still need to go to Arcade Club. We um, do. I keep saying to Andy, look, we're definitely going to come down and um, if we're ever in Norwich, we'll definitely come along to this as well. If you do make it down this weekend, tweet us a few pics, let us know what you think of it. Now, before we get into our chat all about General Magic, this legendary company with Matt Maud, who's made a movie all about it, one thing I do love about the Retro Hour podcast is, when we go to events, at least two-thirds of us are rocking some pretty impressive facial hair. Wow. <laughs> I don't know about you, Dan, but me and Ravi are... You know, part of the beard gang, the beard bros. We're hair farmers at the moment. <laughs> We're hair so. farmers at the moment. We have been for many years. Let's just hear how soft your beards are. I just want you to rub your beards on the microphones. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Listen to that soft beards. Now, the reason we're mentioning this and the reason these guys are looking so dashing this week is thanks to our new supporter. Let's give a big thank you to the Brighton Beard Company. Now, they craft the finest beard products to make your facial fuzz look the best it can possibly look. And it's got natural ingredients in there as well, handpicked for their nourishing properties and incredible 
incredible fragrance as well. Now, whatever your beard's like, I mean, you know, Ravi's quite neatly trimmed. Joe's a bit Father Christmas-esque, <laughs> I've got to say. Um, but whatever your lifestyle is, the Brighton Beer Company products are there every step of the way to make sure your beard's healthy, flake-free, looking glossy as well. And one less thing to worry about in the morning, too, when you're getting ready for your day. Produced in the UK, cruelty-free, recyclable, and always handmade with the utmost care and attention. Now, you guys have been trying out their products for the last week or so now. Yeah, usually I just consider getting my beard trimmed, but yeah. actually... I've been using this oil and it feels, you you know, like those metal scourers that you have to clean dishes. That's how my beard usually feels. Yeah. And now it's feeling nice and kind of, actually, it's a bit soft. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my, my beard does usually feel like a bit of a brush. I've been using the balm yeah, uh, and it has actually made it quite a bit softer, to yeah. be fair. So I have been enjoying it and I love the smell of it as well. But yeah, it's becoming part of my morning routine after the shower and it is definitely softening it up for me. Your wife's been using it too. My wife has <laughs> been using it. So not on her beard. <laughs> Let me just get that out of there. So a friend, I told a friend of mine at work about it and yeah. she said that she uses her brother's um, balm and that is the exact same brand and she uses it on her eyebrows and right. I told my wife this and it has been certified by my wife who is a beauty therapist but it works on eyebrows very nicely <laughs> as well <laughs> so everybody can check this out now yeah. do yourself a favour Try the Brighton Beard Company product, specially formulated to treat, tame, and nourish your facial hair. Your beard will thank you for it, or your eyebrows. Now, if you'd like to get, we've got an ex- exclusive offer for Retro Hour listeners. The Brighton Beard Company are offering our listeners, only Retro Hour listeners can get this, 15% off their entire collection. Now, all you've got to do, and obviously you'll be helping out the podcast for doing this, is visit their website, thebrightonbeardcompany.co.uk, enter the code RETRO15 at checkout. So that is thebrightonbeardcompany.co.uk. Enter the code RETRO15 to get 15% off that entire collection for beard perfection delivered straight to your door. Now let's talk about a company that really changed the world and unfortunately a lot of people have never heard of. Let's hear the story of General Magic. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is our pleasure to welcome on this week's special guest talking about a new movie that chronicles one of the most innovative and groundbreaking technology companies. One that you may have never heard of, which is quite tragic, really, considering how much they did. Today, we're going to be talking about General Magic, and we're joined by Matt Maud. So welcome to the show, Matt. Great to have you on. Thank you very much for having me. Now, before we get into kind of just how innovative General Magic were, and uh, this new movie as well, it talks all about the company. What was the first that you heard about General Magic? Do you remember where it kind of started for you? Yeah, so you describing it to your audiences of being like oh you haven't heard about general magic before i was exactly that person like please don't like like chuck rocks at me or just swear at me incessantly but i'm i'm not a technologist and so when i came across this story i was kind of like huh okay that kind of sounds like vaguely interesting but then i kept on being told about the people that worked at general magic and where they went on to And I just couldn't believe that there was this really small group of people who were all working together in their 20s, about 100 engineers that would, the people that worked there, they would be the people that would go on to create the iPhone, create Android, create eBay, one of the founders of LinkedIn, like the woman who was the chief technology of Barack Obama's government. It was just like a who's who of technology that had all worked at this tiny little company. It's kind of like going to a high school where every single person that went to that high school went on to like ridiculous success. And for me, I was just trying to work out like what was the magical haha, ingredients <laughs> that were in General Magic that created all of these incredible success stories. So General Magic came out of Apple, I guess, and 
That was during the John Scully period, right? So yeah. um it was, was no, it normally there's the... like booze that can come from <laughs> like, oh boo boo. <laughs> well, um, was it called initially the Paradigm Project? Yeah. Okay, you've done some research. I'm into this. Yeah, it was it was called the Paradigm and uh, the paradigm was like uh, it was it was part of like several devices that would connect and communicate with each other. So you would have something called a pocket crystal that would fit into your pocket and that you would enable to be able to do a certain amount of functions and applications on this pocket crystal. Or you could use something called the magic slate, which was like newspaper size that allowed you to do exactly the same things you did on a pocket crystal, but on a slightly larger screen. And then both of those products would be seamless and use exactly the same operating systems as your laptop that you would carry around with you or the desktop computer that would be plugged in. And what was being imagined was a smartphone, a tablet, a laptop or a computer, all being able to instantaneously and anonymously being able to communicate with one another. And so, yeah, it wasn't just that they kind of came up with the idea of that you would have, you know, a smartphone that you carry around with you. It would all be part of like a, a series of products that would all, you know, kind of fit together. It's crazy. I guess it's kind of the birth of cloud computing then, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And I mean, it's weird. Like the guy who founded the company, founded General Magic, was a guy called Mark Peratt. And in the film, uh, we see him come up with this idea, this this magical device that would enable you to be connected to anyone anywhere across the world. And the drawings that he concepted for it look ridiculously like an iPhone 5. But he'd imagined not just like what the device would look like, but all of the applications that are in our smartphones today, he imagined it. And he kept it all in this kind of red leather tome of a book and wrote just like the entire future of, of what we now have today, but written back in 1988 and 1989. And people read this book and they were like, this is science fiction. Like, I can't believe that this is going to be within the realms of possibility. And it's strange, like thinking back on it now, like we look back, we just think, well, you know, how is it that kind of extraordinary? But, you know, back in like 1989, you know, people were like using mobile phones that were attached to their cars. You know, fax was like the invention of the day. You know, this idea that you could come onto this place where you'd find just a, an abundance, an infinite abundance of information online. Just people didn't do that. It was just wasn't in the sort of kind of mainstream consciousness. To access the internet, you needed to have like a series of like 13 digit numbers just to get access to it. It just wasn't part of people's lives. Well, I mean, we're talking that era then, like, you know, late 80s, before... Apple even did the Newton, you know, we're talking about before the World Wide Web was invented. And what were kind of the the aims and the missions of the company when it was founded then? The main thrust of it was is that you would you would have this device that would enable you to be communicating with anybody anywhere across the world. And that this device would be an extension of yourself, that you wouldn't just use it in a professional capacity, which is pretty much what like all the sort of tech companies were trying to do. You know, they were they were trying to create computers for the office. Yeah. You know, the kind of term of PC was a really small market share. You know, very few people owned a personal computer to do personal things on it. But what General Magic had kind of foreseen was is that you would also use this device for social things, that it would be an extension of your social life, how you communicated with your friends and your family. And that if it was so intuitive that you felt so easy using it, it would fit into the mainstream. Because computers at the time, back in like the 80s and 90s, if you unboxed a computer, it came with like a user manual that was the size of like a Bible. Yeah. You had to really know how to use a computer. Whereas now, you know, like, 
my goddaughter, before she could even talk, she knew how to unlock an iPhone, swipe over to an app and open stuff up. You know, like when a child under the age of one can use smartphones, you know that they've UI'd it to the high point where anybody can use it. They can pick up it and feel like an expert. And I suppose I think that's when technology becomes the mainstream, that me, you, your nan can pick up anything that we're using and feel good using it. You don't feel stupid using it. But none of that existed back in like the 80s and early 90s. And so when Mark kind of talked about this, that you would just be able to walk up to it, get in and know how to use it was just extraordinary to not just Apple, but a series of Alliance members that wanted to be part of the General Magic device networks. So how did they actually kind of get out of Apple? Did like John Scully help establish them? And uh, Joanna Hoffman uh, was a vice president of marketing and she seemed to come up with some great kind of ideas about the future of computing. Yeah, um, so Mark convinced John Scully that... Uh, it needed to be done and it needed Apple support, but it couldn't be made inside of Apple. What they were trying to do was something completely new. They were envisioning a completely new operating system, a new way in which these devices would all be connected to each other and be able to talk to each other. And that he feared that it would just get killed inside of Apple's R&D labs, that there'd be too many middlemen, too much management, too much boardroom to be able to create like a nimble company. And he didn't really know it at the time, but what he was talking about was a startup culture where you've got a small number of engineers that have the ability to pivot and to work out different ways of being able to do something without having, you know, uh, managers top to bottom restricting people. The irony is that they did actually need a lot more managers to be you know successful but yeah it, it needed that kind of agileness to for it to succeed in in its first instances in its first infancy and instances um and i think it did you know like it did it it, it really prospered because of that um you know apple wasn't doing well at the time scully had taken over the company from jobs in 1984 and they were kind of floundering. They were losing market share. It didn't seem like it was a young and sexy company any longer. It was being run by executives that didn't understand the products or the technology. And so when it span out, when General Magic span out of Apple, suddenly people were flocking to it because they had some of the Apple blessing and some of the money, but they had so much talent from Apple that was coming with them. And it got to the point where Apple actually had to send an email saying, stop taking our staff um because it was like it was just like a who's who you know suddenly if you've got people like darren adler uh leaving because they want to be around andy hertzfeld and you've got phil goldman leaving because he wants to be around joanna hoffman and bill atkinson and susan Kerr. Everyone else that knew Phil or knew Darren wanted to follow them too. So Steve Perlman went and he got in contact with his friend, Megan Smith, who was living in Japan, working for Apple Japan and said, you've got to come over here. We are creating, I can't tell you what it is, but what it is, it's amazing. And that just, that kind of like, we don't know what they're working on, but everybody we know is working there was how they did their employing. Like 
It's crazy. They were just like, we, we need you to come and work on this secret, but we can't tell you what the secret is. But <laughs> so, come I mean, and work on it. Was it kind of run like completely in secrecy at the start then? I mean, wh- why, do you, why, do you, why do you think they took that approach? Uh, I think it was that, that at that time there was the constant worry that someone was going to come and pinch your ideas. You know, Microsoft was kind of looming out in the ether. You know, there'd been a lot of inverted commas borrowing of other people's ideas by lots of different companies. And so that idea of like, we can't let this idea spill out onto anybody uh, meant that you just had to be really secretive and yeah that they that that's how that's how they did it but also i don't know like whether they were ever aware of it or just thought it was cool that it was some sort of kind of like technological like version of fight club you know like <laughs> first rule about general magic is you don't talk about general magic you know i think to all of these engineers they were just you know the chance to be able to work with people like andy hertzfeld bell atkinson joanna hoffman and susan Kerr. For engineers that was like working with heroes. I mean, these were the people that appeared in a Rolling Stone magazine yeah. alongside Hendrix on one cover and then like, I don't know, like Van Morrison on the other. And then you've got like these guys looking like rock stars programming and making the Macintosh. I mean, they are, they were like absolute heroes in Silicon Valley. I mean, talking about the culture at General Magic as well, I've heard about some kind of strange things they did i mean having all these interesting personalities around the office they did some odd things to kind of inspire creativity even stuff like I've heard, like rabbits used to run around the office or something yeah so phil goldman who's one of the engineers uh, he just brought in his pet rabbit who was called bowser and yeah just kind of let him loose around the office and then I'm trying to think who it was it was bruce leak or andy rubin brought in their parrot um, you know, it was just like that kind of office because people lived there and they were encouraged to spend a lot of time there, not just by management, but by like peer to peer. You know, it's like imagine that it's you're like got like one hobby that you're ridiculously passionate about and you live in a village or a town or a city where no one else has that same passion as you have and that kind of same drive to do it. And then suddenly there's this office that exists where all of those people that you dreamt existed that had the same interests and the same passions and the same abilities to do it suddenly all exist within that same office. They all just wanted to spend all of their time together. And the office did kind of turn into like a weird uh, accommodation setup because people would be sleeping there. They'd, they'd wake up, do a bit of coding, input it, then sleep while it was being inputted, then wake up again. You know, they did become a family because they spent so much time trying to make this same thing together. And so, yeah, suddenly pets arrived and, you know, the need for laundry. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a crazy place. People, like, didn't, like, Sony execs would walk in and they were known at Sony for working hard and they'd walk in and they'd be like, what the F is going on? Like, is this, is this like, is this universe, like, is this a, frat, a sorority? Like, what is going on? And it was just like these crazy 20-somethings all just rushing to try and create this device. Speaking of someone who used to own a rabbit, having rabbits on the loose with um, computers that have cables, not necessarily a good combination <laughs> from experience. Yeah, weird. I mean, Bowser did fine. I think the worst thing that ever happened to Bowser is, is that, like, again, I think it was a Japanese exec came over and sat down on the sofa and there was this, suddenly, like, this, like, ear-piercing shriek and then Bowser, like, legging it out of this sofa. <laughs> They're like, oh, my God, I just sat on a rabbit. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, it was a well-trained rabbit. You mentioned that... Um many companies kind of backed it. So Sony, Motorola, Philips, AT&T. Why do you think they had such a level of confidence in General Magic? Mark was an incredible salesman. His ability to be able to not just formulate the vision, but communicate it to others. 
he went after the top people and John Scully did a great job of introducing him to the chair of Sony and to the CEOs of Motorola. He didn't have to go and pitch it to kind of various levels of people. He just went straight in at the top and pitched them the vision. And he also sort of said to them, it's going to be you or someone else. So, you know, back us because we're, we're going and we want your name behind ours. It's funny, I get asked this question quite a bit of like, why did you, why did they have to have so many companies behind them to kind of form this alliance? And the only way that I can really com- communicate it is, is that, you know, I have to imagine this is a world before the World Wide Web, before any connectivity. And Apple wasn't known in any way, shape or form as a phone provider. It was, it was you know, almost exclusively a personal computer company. So you needed Sony to make the devices for you because they were the market leaders. They were the camcorder. They were the Walkman. You needed Motorola because they were beginning to kind of look at connected devices. And you needed a company like AT&T because they were the network. This is how the products were actually going to be able to communicate with each other because there wasn't a World Wide Web. You needed a telephone company that was actually going to link all of these devices together. And then the alliance just got bigger and bigger because it wasn't just that you wanted it to happen in America. You also wanted it to happen in Japan and you wanted it to happen in France and the UK. And so you've got companies like French Telecom that also joined up to the alliance as a means to be able to make the devices connect between America and Europe. So it was trying to think about, there's a, there's a line in the film where they said, most companies and most products, they stand on the shoulders of giants to make the next thing. Whereas at General Magic, they were making from the giant from the ground upwards. And it's really interesting kind of thinking about that because you do think about technology today and you think, well, that's just a slight iteration or iterate on the last thing. Whereas when you talk to people about General Magic, it's kind of amazing to think that none of that existed prior to General Magic. You're right, I mean, the new iPhone just got announced like yesterday at the time we're recording this, like slightly better camera, batteries a bit better. It's like, you know, you, you don't get those kind of massive innovations that often, do you? No, and actually, I mean, say so iPhone 3, I look, uh, sorry, iPhone 11, it doesn't even got like three cameras on the back of it. Yeah. It looks kind of evil now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, uh, we might come to this, but, you know, I think it's the biggest difference between the way in which technology was released in the 80s and 90s as to how technology is being released during the zeros and the tens of this century. You know, it used to be that you create a product and it would last you for five or 10 years, that they were trying to create a level of perfection that meant that you didn't need to go to the computer store every five years because what you were buying was a huge investment in money. Whereas now, you know, if you see someone wandering around with an iPhone 5, you, you almost want to ask the question, it's like, is everything okay at home? You know, like... <laughs> Is, is it okay? Like, you know, it's, it's, it's within our culture that, you know, that you buy the latest device like every other year. But what are we actually buying? You know, it's not that much better. It's usually just because the battery life on your old phone isn't as good anymore or, you know, the screen is cracked. It's not, it isn't like the giant leaps of technological innovation that existed like 25 years ago. It's just a slightly better version of what it was the year before. Let's talk about those innovations at General Magic. What was Magic Cap? Magic Cap was General Magic's operating system in which that you would go through doors. Their whole operating system was based around that you would move through a house to go and unlock different things. So if you wanted to do anything that was work-wise, you would come to like your desk in your office to send an email or to send a message. But if you wanted to go play games, you'd walk down the corridor and then you'd go into your games room where you could play solitaire. And if you wanted to go out shopping, you'd exit your house and you'd go down to the street. And on the high street, there'd be like these different stores so that you could book flights. That was completely new. There was no other operating system that existed like that previously. And they called that Magic Cap. Well, 
they were making these PDAs, they were kind of making prototypes. Was there anything commercially available from rivals at the time? Anything even close? Newton, uh, they didn't know that Newton was being made at the time, but Newton came into, into that space. It didn't have the same application world that General Magic was trying to create. But yeah, suddenly, I think it was Scully that actually coined the phrase PDA. And it poisoned General Magic because General Magic wasn't seeing themselves as this like personal digital assistant. They they were they were trying to be you know a smartphone. They hadn't kind of come up with that terminology yet, but they were associated with being like these PDAs as opposed to you know this device that you would actually carry around with you all the time. Did they kind of feel betrayed by Scully? Uh, you know, yeah. he'd help originally set it up and then kind of rip their ideas off and release a Newton. Totally, yeah. And there was a massive feeling of betrayal um by everyone in the entire company and it was it was very hard for certain individuals because they knew people that were working on the newton and had been had been kept completely in the dark and so when scully stood up on a podium and said you know we're you're going to be able to send a message from the sky that was the exact words that they've been using at General Magic. And because General Magic had been spun out by Apple, and because Apple owned a huge equity share within the company, they were sharing all their ideas back and forth with Apple, thinking that they were working with a parent, with a partner. And so suddenly to have all of your ideas be put into this new device in a different form, but with all of the same, you know, kind of feeling and same, I don't know, like, yeah, it's, it's all in the ether. It's all being shared well, that was that was a not very successful project, and uh, you know, it's usually people take the rip out of Apple when they mention the Newton. Um, <laughs> were kind of GM a bit annoyed? Did they think it was too early for releasing something like this to the public? That handwriting yeah. recognition was terrible, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the stylus was not a good thing, but I mean, you have to remember that everyone was going down with styluses. Mm. Like it was mm. the way in which you would write things. You know, the idea of actually being able to kind of tap on the screen going through a keyboard was just people just didn't do that and and in a way like the iphone was what changed that you know everything else prior to the iphone still had a keypad on it so we have gone through these iterations different iterations of how we we typing out or writing out our thoughts onto a screen now you think well why wouldn't you do anything other than just type it onto a screen um but yeah going back to going back to your kind of question yeah i mean it was uh it was it was a grave sense of betrayal that um, from everybody at General Magic. And I don't think at the time in which they were working on the device, did they have a real date in mind as to when the device was going to be ready or released. But as soon as Newton was announced that it was going to be shipping in like a year, it focused everybody to be like, oh, wow, we have to ship our device really close to when the Newton is released. Otherwise, we're we're just going to get blown out by the water because, you know, Apple's marketing, Apple's ability to kind of roll out devices is going to be far bigger than what we're able to do. We have to, we have to, we have to release something. And for us as filmmakers, that decision was what created all of the material, all of the archival material that allowed us to make the film. Because they suddenly brought in a documentary team in order to film sequences, showing the general magic engineers working every single hour of the day to create this device. So that when they did their own announcements, stood in New York, Mark Peratt on stage, the 
founder and CEO of General Magic telling people about what their General Magic device was going to look like. Because all these journalists had heard secrets, but hadn't heard actually what was going on. And suddenly showing people what this device was going to be able to do, what it was going to look like, all surrounded by the CEOs of Sony, Motorola, AT&T, this whole alliance of partners. They showed this film of these engineers working around the clock and everyone was like, it's coming. The future is coming. I, you know, like, I don't want to just write about it. I want to live in that future. And then suddenly all the press came to General Magic. And so it was this competition between Newton and General Magic and a couple of others. Like everyone was still very much kind of worried about what Microsoft was going to release um, or what IBM was kind of thinking. Um, but yeah, everyone was talking about General Magic. You know, today we're, we're used to walking in the house and asking Alexa to turn the lights on or asking Siri to book you an appointment at the hairdressers. But, you know, GM actually were developing their own voice assistant too back then. Yeah, I mean, when I talk about it with other people, it, it's everything that your smartphone can do in a device being made with early 90s tech. And we don't go like too techy in the film, um, but there's one thing that always kind of blew me away personally, which is that like the, the first device that General Magic made, which is called the Magic Link, it had a one megabyte memory and it had one megabyte of RAM. So they were trying to create all of the functionality of what you can do now on your Android or your iPhone with a megabyte. And I think that's one of the reasons why the engineers to this day are still lauded as heroes because they were, they were creating so much, so much functionality out of nothing. It's like when you hear about the lunar module that landed Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin onto the moon, like the entire spaceship had 76 kilobytes of computing power in it. It's like a pocket it, calculator. <laughs> yeah, and, and like four kilobytes of it was actual rewritable memory. Like it's insane that engineers were able to get so much out of so little. And the same parallel thought can be kind of thrust onto the general magic engineers well, because they were trying to do so much. It's insane what you kind of hear about. You, you know, they, they help with the development of streaming TV, network games, and also the touchscreen as well. So could you talk about those a little bit? Yeah, so there's a great little bit of archival footage where Megan Smith, who would later become the chief technology officer of the United States government, is kind of crouched in front of a locker and I think she's all of like 23 or 24 and she's opening it up and she's like rooting through all of these like different bits of components and she pulls out something that they call a walkabout and it's a prototype of what the what the device you know is kind of like they're using all the components in a big form factor to try and work out how they can make it into a smaller form factor and uh she's you know she's kind of like showing them like how it operates and the like the camera crew you can kind of hear them sort of kind of giggling because they just don't really believe her that there's this touchscreen thing that you know if you move the x and the y axis and it kind of works out where you put pressure that it kind of does a slight bit of math, math algorithm to be able to differentiate differentiate between you pressing r or you pressing x and that this is how touchscreen was made. Like the, the touchscreens that existed at the time were so bad. And General Magic went out across the world to try and find the best glass that would be able to create a touchscreen. And they found it in a Japanese glass company that was making really thin windows. I don't know why, but that's what they used on the device. 
and yeah, I mean, like that innovation was one thing. The other innovation was also happening like in software and design. So Susan Kerr, who does all of the iconography of, of the Macintosh computers, she's now, I think, uh, one of the senior illustrators at Pinterest. Like if you think of an icon that is on your computer, Susan Kerr has probably designed it. Susan, Bill and Andy came up with this idea that maybe words weren't going to be enough to communicate between people. Maybe you could do with like having a, emojis and emoticons on this device that would enable you to be able to just kind of share a feeling or that you could just tap on some lips that are on the device and then record a voice note onto your message and send it off to the sky. So they were creating like WhatsApp message and iMessage and a means to be able to type it with your fingers and use a stylus if you wanted to draw something. It's like all of the functionality of like what's going into like a Samsung phone now, but thought about in 1991. It's crazy. Well, we're talking about that kind of early 90s to mid 90s period. I mean, it was a difficult time in technology. We saw around then companies like Atari and Commodore went bankrupt. And a lot of people thought, you know, around 95, Apple were due to go the same way. A lot of people thought they wouldn't survive. I mean, was there any kind of worry that that would affect GM around that point? I think by the time that Newton came out, I think, you know, any sort of sympathy for Apple's plight had dissolved. Um, and, you know, they they were walking through walls, making these incredible technological innovations every single day that I think everybody at General Magic thought that they were going to be the ones to do it. And because they were working with people like Andy Hertzfeld and Bill Atkinson and Joanna Hoffman, who had created the 1984 Macintosh, that had created such seismic change in computing and technology, when you're working around people that have done it before, it inspires you to think that you can also do it too. So yeah, they were filled with this hubris that they were going to put a dent in the universe. And it was, it was like, it was happening every day. Like there's this story that Tony Fadell tells that we couldn't put in the film because there's like no archival material to kind of make it like character led. But he said that like they went to Sony and they were presenting what the device was going to look like. And they were showing them the diagrams of how all the components were going to fit together. And they were walking through it and suddenly this, this Japanese exec put his hand up and said, Tony-san, there is, there is, no, there is no modem in your, in your diagram. Where is your modem? And Tony said, oh, well, we've, we've created um, a software modem. So the modem's just now in software. And the man just could not understand. He was like, but no, where is the component? He's like, no, it's now in software. There's no hardware for it. It's not needed. And so suddenly he ran out of the room brought in another Japanese executive from Sony and said, Tony-san, please tell this man what you have just told me. And he said, well, we, we've just created this new innovative kind of sleek solution to create you know, a software modem. So we don't need that component anymore. And the other Japanese exec looked down, bowed, and then left the room. And his colleague said, I'm sorry, Tony-san, the, the man you have just spoken to, you have just, you have just made his entire department obsolete. Wow. Oh, wow. Gosh. <laughs> you know, like it was that kind of stuff. So when you're inspired by that kind of innovation, that you're not just creating a solution for your product, but for, for everybody's products, there was just fe this feeling that General Magic was going to succeed. Well, what kind of went wrong with General Magic then? Why, I know it went busting, I mean, quite a few years later, 2002, but what were their kind of missteps and why did it not quite work out to plan? Uh, there were so many mistakes or missteps that were within it that all kind of contributed to general magic's failure that that hubris i think was one of the ingredients um the idea that they would be able to create their own version of the world wide web and that it would be so good that their version of a proprietary web that would charge their customers a monthly fee would be better than a world wide web that was free 
like you 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 that's that's not a business model that sounds very um, apple <laughs> yeah and, and it wasn't just like apple making that mistake you know microsoft made the same mistake general magic made the same mistake you know aol's made the same mistake there was all these companies that were saying we are big enough that people will just use our systems because they already know us but yeah as soon as you make it open and you make it free then the world will beat you like that's you, you can't you can't beat free um but so that was definitely like a, a mistake that was in there. There wasn't really a level of management at General Magic of someone coming around for with you know for uh, looking for like a better choice of words with a club, like saying to people, "We've got a ship. Like you need to get your stuff finished in a month." That sort of Steve Jobs like presence that we have to ship on deadline. That great artists ship didn't really exist, and they kept on missing deadlines. But I think the biggest thing is about timing. The General Magic device, when it was released, people picked it up and they're like, well, what does this what does this product immediately solve in my life? They created this device that was kind of too far in the future for the mainstream to be able to be ready for it. There wasn't enough kind of little goalpost shifts so that you, me, everyone, your parents, grandparents, your children could walk up to this device and know how to use it. And going back to that point I was kind of making earlier, the difference between 80s tech and 90s tech and our 21st century tech is, is that the reason why we all know how to use our smartphones is because we walked through six or seven years of iPod iterations. You know, the 2001 iPod wasn't that much different to a 2003 one, and it wasn't that much different to a 2005 one. You look at the difference between an iPod of 2001 and an iPhone of 2019, it's massive, but all of those little steps, all of those little jumps allows your audience to be taken with you as opposed to just being like, if you gave someone an iPhone like 11, 30 years ago and expected them to know how to use it, they wouldn't have a clue. But it's just that we've kind of gone through all these baby steps that we've kind of walked and run and sprint, but we've done that with our products. General Magic created something and expected people to just fly with it, even though that they could barely crawl. I mean, you know, Steve Jobs obviously came back to Apple in like 97, I think it was from memory, and then obviously revived Apple. And I mean, he was at Next before that. Did, did you know, like, did Jobs ever see the stuff that General Magic were doing and what he thought of it? Do you know if he ever saw any of that stuff? Um, he was invited to General Magic. He was still very good friends with Bill Atkinson and Andy Hertzfeld, Joanna Hoffman. And so they invited him to kind of have a look at the device. Uh, and I think the greatest compliment that he paid to them is that he didn't rip it apart. Um, you know, he, he, he tested the device and got a lot of functionality out of it and, you know, like enjoyed parts of it. Like a lot of people, he was kind of questioning as to, would you be ready for it? Um, would the world be ready for it? And one of the things that he really liked that he saw was this idea of a projected keyboard that you would be able to just interact with the device with your fingertips and that you could tap into your device and that it would be something that was tactile as opposed to like a screen that was completely inert. And those ideas have, you know, fallen into the iPhone. And I think that's not just Steve doing, that is people like Tony Fidel and uh, Brian Sander different people that worked at General Magic, Bruce Leake, I think is another one, who then went on to work on the iPod development and then the iPhone developments. And they were all coming with their General Magic experiences, knowing through the things that didn't work and the things that did. 
but you know it must have just been a really crazy period of time where say general magic failed properly i mean like it survived until 2002 but it was on its wane in sort of 1995 1996 for people like tony fidel who was working at general magic at the time and having to like mine all of these components to get the most out of them fast forward five or six years and all of the silicon has just enhanced and improved so much all of the other components like the ram the chips everything else that had really prevented general magic from kind of becoming the processor that it could be suddenly had all been fast forwarded and so what the ipod was able to do so easily with relatively kind of um, small but much more modern components was far 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 ahead of what general magic had been I'm trying to think what the law is. Is it Moore's law? Well, um, kind of moving on to the documentary, because you, you've made a fantastic kind of documentary that's covering all of this. Um, I was wondering how much of the original team uh, kind of featured in the film or got involved with making it or gave you quotes? Um, so I was born in 1985. So when General Magic span out of Apple, I was four years old. And so I had no idea about any of this. Um, but my co-director and co-producer, who's an incredible filmmaker called Sarah Karouche, has a much more interesting story than mine in how we kind of made the film. So Sarah was part of the original documentary team that shot the archival footage that makes up our film. There's a couple of moments in the film where I can actually like see Sarah in the back of the shot making these kind of slightly weird Hitchcock appearances that she wouldn't know about for the ne- until like 25 years later. But Sarah was in and out of the company filming different scenes and sequences for years. And so she got to know all of these engineers. She, she stayed in contact with them. They were her friends. And it wasn't until years later when she began to see different people pick up the original vision and iterate it in a very small way or a big way. Like seeing someone like Pierre Emilio, like the founder of eBay, used to work at General Magic, seeing him kind of taking like online shopping and rolling with it, seeing Tony Fidel pick up like the music portion or the portability option of General Magic and creating the iPod and then the iPhone. Similarly with like Andy Rubin, Android, there was all these different people that were succeeding in these different spaces that Sarah was like, whoa, like this is, this is a film. Like this whole story, this whole, this idea of, you know, perseverance, friendship, failure, success, learning about yourself, learning how to do things better the next time. That is a film that we can tell through all of these characters. And uh, that's that's kind of how we made the film because um, Sarah was still friends with all these people. So um, the executive producer of our film is a guy called Michael Stern, and he used to be the legal counsel at General Magic. One of the co-producers of the film is a woman called Dee Gardetti, and she used to be head of HR at General Magic. And because we had these people who were both part of General Magic, the company, and General Magic, the film, allowed us to be able to get in contact with so many different people that worked at General Magic and say, we're making this film, and we want you to be in it, and we're gonna be really truthful, we're not gonna shy away from anything. Would you like to tell us your story? And that's how the film kind of first came to be. Has there been any kind of challenging aspects of making the documentary and anything you kind of left out the film or decided to keep in? And Yeah, I mean, like the way in which I talk about filmmaking, like any film, uh, is, is that like there's, there's like four stages of like making a film, which is that uh, you've got to develop the script and like raise finance. And then you go into pre-production where you're planning everything. 
then the production when you're filming everything, and then post-production when you're editing everything. On a documentary, all those parts are all interchangeable and that you can be doing one at the same time as the rest. Whereas on a fiction film, you own, you do them incrementally. You work very linear. On a documentary, you're doing all of that all the time. And then that all of those parts are all just kind of diff, getting up different base camps on the pursuit of climbing Everest. But then when you're making an independent film, like the marketing and selling and actually like people seeing the film is getting down from the mountain alive. Um, and so, yeah, you have to kind of go through all of these kind of like crazy steps and you fall a lot and climb a lot. So, yeah, like making any film is super challenging. But there is this like Steve Jobs quote, which I really love, which is that the, the journey is the reward. Like if you're just doing it for the destination, that view is going to feel really hollow. And I really subscribe to that, that, you know, like making a film, like doing something that you love is incredible. Uh, the difference, I think, when you're making a documentary to a fiction film is, is that like because the amount of time that you spend working on it with a relatively small amount of people, it's not enough to love the thing that you're making. You have to love the people that you're making it with. And I feel really blessed that like I got to work with so many people that were complete strangers to me before I started working on the film that now I feel, you know, as close to as family. And yeah, like I, my family also worked on the film. Like my brother is the other cinematographer and he'd never met my production manager before working on the film. And now they're married. Wow. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been, it's been like really joyful, uh, to be a bit more specific to your question though. Yeah. It, it comes with challenges because, um, you're, you're creating a story that you hope exists and that you're forming a script from what people are telling you. But if you don't have the material in order to tell that story, it's just going to be a series of talking heads, a series of people being interviewed, recounting something that happened years ago. And so you have to go and find all of that archival footage. You have to find those photographs that allows the audience to actually live inside of your movie so that they can be in the offices back in the 1990s and feel like the audience is making the device with these people. And for me, like for someone who's not that really interested in technology, the thing that motivates me in any film is to tell an emotionally compelling story. And so for some, a film like this, it's like the hope is that you, you come for the technology but you stay because of the characters and that you begin to care about them and relate to them because these characters that are kind of stereotypically known as kind of fairly robotic engineers are actually people that get hurt. They're people that get really happy, really sad. They move through their own grief when it doesn't work out. These are people that you can relate to and, and learn from that felt like a really important emotional story to tell. And the only way that you can do that is by creating these sequences in which the audience gets to live with them. And so we had to go off and find this archival material, which felt a lot of the times like uh, like a police detective solving a crime that never happened. Because we'd get these photos from different people that worked at General Magic, and they kept these photos for years and years. And then in the back of like one of the photographs, there'd be another person like holding a camera. And so we'd get in contact with that person and say, like, I'm sorry, there's this photo from 25 years ago, you're holding a camera, there's no way by any chance that you still have that camera, do you? And then they'd send us the pictures <laughs> from that camera that they had at that party. And then there would be someone holding a Polaroid camera, and you'd ask if they had those polaroids and then at some point through this kind of weird photo tracing we found someone who was holding a video camera and we got in contact with that person and said there's no way is there that you still have those videotapes and then they sent us the videotapes 
and that's what allows you to tell different parts of the story so yeah it's uh it's been like a, a treasure hunt trying to make this film well it's not out yet um but you have been showing it around film festivals what what's the reaction been we've been blown away by the reaction um i think it's slightly different for me than it is for the people that worked on both the both the company and the film like the reason why i wanted to get involved in the film was i felt like this was a really important story that it had there's a kind of like there's a universal story within it that anybody could relate to irrespective as to whether he had any interest in technology um so i wanted there to be like a global impact for the film but you're you're just telling yourself or you're hoping that that's going to happen so when the film did premiere at the tribeca film festival which is like robert de niro's film festival in new york you're like yeah this is bucket list time like this is awesome you know to be having brunch with robert de niro is a bit weird um so yeah like for it to kind of have that kind of impact and for it to play at like i don't know how many film festivals we played at but a bunch of film festivals and we kind of picked up some awards along the way and then the film got acquired by national geographic who won the oscar last year for free solo and then by showtime films as well so audiences across the world have been able to see the film in cinemas and on tv has been awesome um and you know we're like super excited for this next couple of weeks because the film gets released everywhere on 1st of october and then it's coming to uk cinemas on the 16th of october so the film has another kind of release um so yeah it's been it's been awesome what's audience reaction been like to like the story i mean are they kind of blown away that this one company did all this stuff yeah i mean it's uh we um how to to kind of describe it we kind of like tee up some of it right within the first minute of the film that there is you know like there's going to be quite a bit of success and there's going to be potentially some failure along the way um but yeah there's this kind of sequence towards the end of the film where we show the characters uh in archive material again so we've we've gone through like 1990 all the way up to present day and then just before the film ends we go back to this like archival sequence where we see the characters back again at general magic and then we put up their current business titles of what they're doing now and you're seeing like you know like heads of like facebook and samsung and apple and google it's like Everyone who worked there is now doing something amazing at these different tech companies. It's just like, whoa, I didn't even realize that that guy, her, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, it's just this incredible litany uh, and heritage that's been kind of passed up from General Magic into the companies that they now work at. Um, so, yeah, it's cool. And I mean, for, for me, you know, like, and for Sarah, the reason why we made this film is, is that if, this pe- if these people could go through such a catastrophic failure in their professional lives and then come out of it and then create incredible successes that have touched the lives of billions of people, so can you. Like if you've gone through something in your life, and I think we all have, you know, a misstep or something that we wish hadn't happened, if they can go through it, why can't you? Because there's enough problems that are going on in the world. We need every single person to come to the table to find solutions to it. So, yeah, if these ordinary people who were there in their 20s, like super earnest, creating these little like walkabouts and prototypes, if they're the people that can be in Barack Obama's cabinet, if they're the people that can create devices that billions of people can use, so can you, because they were ordinary people that did something extra to make them extraordinary. Are and there, that's who we need. Are there 
kind of any other tech companies, like innovative ones that you might want to cover in future? Maybe we'd see a Netscape film or something like that. It's funny. So John J. Andrea, who's one of the exec producers of our film, left General Magic to join Netscape. Ah. And now he is uh, head of AI at Apple. He was previously head of AI robotics and search at Google. So he's had a pretty amazing path from General Magic. Uh, for me personally, I'm done. Like I felt like I've got to spend a significant amount of time in Silicon Valley and I feel really thankful that, you know, like I, I know much more about technology than I used to considering its impacts, not just on my life, but on everybody else's lives. But for me, there's, uh, there's, there's other stories that need to be told and different stories. So yeah, I've, I've kind of like kind of paid my dues to Silicon Valley and it's kind of time to move on to the next projects. There's probably a handful of companies in, in history that have influenced the world of technology in the way that General Magic did. All these people, all these incredible technologies coming out there. It really was a story that deserved a real, you know, proper telling and having this kind of attention given to it. So, um, so you mentioned about the film being available from next month. How can people see it and where can they check out the film? So from October 1st, the film is live everywhere so if you want to head to itunes amazon or google play you can either stream the film or download it and then get back in contact with us tell us whether you like the film like we're pretty easy to get hold of uh, and we've been like amazed with the response that we received from people watching it up on showtime and national geographic and we want this film to be seen by everybody so get in contact with us ask us how you can get involved because um, we feel like this is a film that's really important for companies, for them to be able to talk about failure of success, for schools, for students, whether they be studying business or tech, to learn some of the lessons from General Magic and to inspire people to kind of follow in the same footsteps. Well, Matt, it's been wonderful getting the stories about General Magic. Good luck with the film. Um, thank, you. thank you so much for coming on this week. Not at all. Love to meet Dan. Love to meet you.